The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Yeah, look at Mickey not pronouncing it correctly. I'm going to cut that anyway because I'm editing. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 293 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, delighted to be on the Jackie Weaver live. Oh, love some Jackie Weaver, mate. Friend of the pod. Yeah, friend of the pod. <laughs> and now she's had a train line named after her. Sadly, not really. They've named all of the overground lines, mm. and one of them is the Weaver line, and apparently not after Jackie, but in my heart, yeah, after Jackie. I did read who they were all named after, and it was getting some people very agitated. It was one of those, this is so woke. Look at this named after an AIDS hospital and the suffragettes. I noticed, and you probably noticed too, that they put Millicent Fawcett on their publicity, who wasn't a suffragette. She was a suffragist, a suffragist, suffragist people. exactly. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the Lioness line. Yes, that one made my heart swell. I don't, no one in London is going to use those names. They're not going to. They might on the Lioness line because it sounds quite cool, but no one's going to call it the fucking Windrush line. It's just not going to happen. And also, as someone else, Natalie Morris, I think it was, a journalist pointed out, wouldn't it be a better tribute to the uh, Windrush generation if they actually paid them some fucking compensation rather than wearing the track line after them? Yeah, totally exactly agree with that, Jen. But I think it will be useful for tourists, yep. which in turn will make things easier for Londoners. Because so many of them find themselves on that line between Euston and Wolverhampton. <laughs> Doesn't go to Euston, sadly. But oh, no. sorry. But they all come here trying to get to Chingford, Jen. And it's just my head in. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. I'm doing well on my resolutions. Good. Almost too well, Hannah. Yeah, yeah, She's losing yeah. trousers at a rate of knots. I don't usually do resolutions because I'm really shit at doing them. But I decided if I tried to make just a list of things I'd like to achieve in a year and add a little check-in to see how I was doing on the weight I, I was medically ordered to lose, the amount of money that I wanted to have save or to save this year, and the amount of books I wanted to read for pleasure mm-hmm. rather than for work. And I'm actually ahead on the weight, a tiny bit behind on the money by literally two pounds I can give you that, mate. Not the same two pounds that I'm ahead on the weight, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've read four books for pleasure already this year. So yeah. Fucking hell. That's incredible scenes. Well done. Very proud of you. Yeah. Humble brag. Is that the correct use of that? Was it humble? Was it humble? Well, that humble I didn't think it was. Yeah. I'd say that was a straight old brag. Right, but but why yeah. not? Brag, brag. Yeah. Toot your own horn or as uh, as my daughter's father says to her, Gash yourself up, Hannah, because no one else is going to do it. So, you know, gash yourself up. Uh, yeah, I'm Jen Offord, and I've been introducing my daughter to Strombolese. Is this, uh, this something to do with the Midnight Garden, isn't it? No, it's not. Strom- it's to no. do with uh, is football. It's to do with football. I love his garden of money. He's got his Strombolese. Uh, Strombolese <laughs> is the actual lyrics. What am I thinking of then? What's in the Midnight Garden that's like that? I don't know, Hannah. 
can't, I can't beat the inside of your mind. But also, why are you watching <laughs> The Midnight Garden? You don't have any children. Because I look after my friend's kids sometimes. Somebody told me once that it's incredible for sending your children to sleep in the midnight they garden. They didn't send you to sleep. Or in the night in garden. In the night garden. And I said, yeah. In the night garden. And I said, I didn't believe it. And then I was looking after my friend's kids. Suddenly one of them was poking me. Hannah. And I was like, Christ, they're both awake, but I'm sound asleep. Hannah and Levy, available for all your babysitting needs. <laughs> if you're listening and that was your children, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I took, I took my daughter to the arse. Arsenal on uh, Saturday for the WSL match against Manchester United. And I said I wouldn't talk about record-breaking numbers on this podcast, but it was a record attendance, it which was, was very yeah. nice. And I had a lovely time, and she was dancing away when they scored their goals to the uh, song oh. that they played. Yeah, we had a great time, and I made her wear a Tottenham Athletic shirt. Boom. It was very nice. It was a very nice day. I'm I'm glad that she doesn't mind football. It's going to make life a bit easier going forward. Yeah. And now she knows it's definitely for girls. It's quite funny. My boyfriend, I told him about what Lyra said. And he said, she doesn't not like football because she's a girl. She doesn't like football because her mum supports Charlton Athletic and her dad supports Arsenal. A fair <laughs> point well made. Fair enough. <laughs> Coming up, I chat to director Emily Burns and the legendary Lindsay Duncan, star of the National Theatre's revival of Dear Octopus, about family dynamics and more. I talk to Hannah Walker about the dark side of gambling and her new show, Gamble, which is about to go on a tour around the UK. In Journey of the Blocks, we're welcoming back the Netball Super League. And will the bromance in 1974's Blazing Saddles set our chaps on fire? Find out Chips. in this week's Rated or Dated. But first, have I found an upside to Brexit? Surely not. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Houston. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Please keep shouting about voter ID. I know you sent me a link earlier to explain this joke, Jen, but I didn't have time to read it because I was in a chemist drama. That's fine, mate. It's not really a joke so much as just like a statement of uh, just please keep telling people about voter ID because feel like the election is going to be soon. It's got to be soon. Yeah. Please let it be soon. And we have to get these pricks out for reasons that I'm sure we're about to detail, Hannah. I feel like we have to get these pricks out. People don't know about voter ID. And I know I keep talking about it, but there is a reason why the Byline Times had an article yesterday that 10 million people don't know about voter ID. And they need to know and they need to apply for it and get it now so that they've got it and they're ready for when the general election is called, which fucking Christ, I hope, is going to be soon. Well, it is going to be soon. It's certainly going to be within the year. So let's do something useful with, with this rage, Jen. Okay, you have to have photo ID, no evidence of it being required. I know someone who currently has no passport and doesn't have a driving licence. So so they need to apply for special because the other forms of ID that they will accept are, all are basically <laughs> all for pensioners. Yeah. So like if you're young and really not going to vote Tory, <laughs> it's going to be really hard for you to vote unless you go online and you apply for a special free voter ID. I think you just have to give them a photo of yourself and possibly some other details, but you can do it online. And what? The point of telling everyone about this is when they do call an election, which could be any time, when they do that, can you imagine 
the people who do actually know about this, the mad fucking rush there'll be for yeah. people to obtain this ID and how shit our systems are and how difficult that will be. Yeah. Like, it takes a thousand years to get a passport now, for God's sake. So, like, I'm just going to say it now because that is the only useful thing I can do. If you go online to gov.uk forward slash apply slash for slash photo slash ID slash voter slash authority slash certificate you will be able to apply for free photo id or you can just google how much is this gonna cost given that it's so unnecessary oh it's stupid it's ridiculous it's stupid it's also just more people at polling stations isn't it checking shit so it's yeah. it's absolutely nonsense but it is literally designed to stop people who are less likely to vote conservative from voting so There you go. Anyway, tell everyone you know about voter ID and get them to apply for it. Talking of not having any money, Jen. Yeah. Talking about these pricks who we need to get rid of. Yeah, lovely couple of segues there. So as it was announced last week that the UK had fallen into recession in the last quarter of 2023. That was a surprise, was it? Didn't see that one coming. It's not just households cutting their spending. Some pretty miserable news from the third sector followed last weekend as domestic abuse and sexual violence charities warned that cuts to council budgets will have a, and I quote, devastating impact on support for women. So it's well documented that local councils are feeling the strain at the moment. Six have declared bankruptcy since 2021, including Birmingham City Council, as we've talked about on the podcast. However, According to research by the New Statesman, almost a quarter of councillors polled by the publication back in November last year said that it was likely or very likely that their council would follow suit in the next five years. Bankruptcy for everyone! Yeah, thank God! Who needs a health service? So though it was announced earlier this month that councils in England would see a 7.5% uplift in funding in cash terms for the next financial year, Central government grant funding for councils has dropped by, this is quite a big number, Hannah, 40%. Fucking hell. 40% in the decade between 2009-2010 and 2009-2020. Lucy Hadley, head of policy at Women's Aid, said that the rising costs of living were actually aggravating cases of domestic violence, with more women unable to leave due to financial dependency on their abusers, But help was now also increasingly under threat. She said, sadly, this is not an issue decision makers prioritise because it's not something that affects everyone in their community. It's not the bin services, for example, that they get lots of letters about. And she called on government to ring fence funding for these services. You will have heard loads of pretty shocking statistics about budget cuts. Suffolk Council, for example, recently announced a 100% cut to to arts and culture funding for the next financial year. So like the, the problem that these women's services have is that most of the services are also non-statutory which means that local councils aren't actually obligated to provide them but i don't say that thing about suffolk council to pit the services against each other there's enormous value in arts and culture funding obviously i do however want to underline the point that not dead women should not in my opinion be a nice to have it's horrendous yeah it is horrendous roll on next election Mm. So, 
Last week, I promised to talk about what's going on in Poland regarding its abortion ban, and I'm a woman of my word on this at least. So here we go. And Jen, a few weeks ago, you asked me if there was a single good thing to come out of Brexit, and difficult to believe, though it is, I might have found one. Wow. Yeah. It's not good for us, but somebody else may be benefiting from our pain. Well, fair enough. Let's remind people what the current situation for a woman seeking abortion in Poland is. You can't have one, except in cases of rape and incest or if the mother's life is at risk. And if you listen to our documentary back in 2018 about the repeal of the Eighth Amendment in Ireland, you'll know that at the point at which it can be said that a mother's life is at risk from pregnancy is often the point at which it is too late to Mm. save her. And if you know anything about the way the world works, shit, if you've just arrived from a different planet, you'll know that proving rape is, well, often nigh on impossible. Yep. But Poland, which is a very Catholic country, had an election in October and the previous right-wing government was replaced by a coalition led by Prime Minister Donald Tusk. If that name rings a bell, it's because he was president of the EU Council through most of the Brexit negotiations, which means that he is a patient man. (laughs) And he is going to need that now because he's attempting to change the law on abortion while dealing with a lot of obstruction, self-importance and petty differences. You're welcome, Poland. (laughs) Tusk has said that changing the law is a priority, but he faces opposition from inside his own government because coalitions, as we know, can be a shit show. The centrist civic coalition and the left, which has a capital letter, by the way, so it's the left as in it's a group, both favour change. But as well as the centre-right Poland 2050 and the Polish People's Party are against it and believe that liberalising the law should be put to a national referendum only after restoring the legal situation from before the 2020 ban. That would permit abortion only under strict terms, including if the fetus has serious, and by that, life-limiting defects. I don't like that word, defects, but that's the word they used. The Civic Coalition and the left both submitted separate draft texts of new regulations, which are different but have some areas of crossover, but essentially say abortion should be an unconditional right up to the 12th week of pregnancy, or later, if the pregnancy is threatening the life of the mother or is a result of rape or incest. That's a view strongly backed by opinion polls. The left also seeks to remove the current criminal sanctions for assisting abortion. Matters may be helped or complicated by upcoming elections for the EU Parliament in April and for a new president in 2025. The current president is seen as a roadblock to changing the abortion laws, but will he be ousted, making Tusk's plans more workable? Man, I hope so. Women of Poland, we have our fingers crossed for you. But if Brexit has showed us anything, it's that Tusk does not give up. <laughs> so again, you're welcome. Is he? Uh, yeah, he always seemed like a very decent chap to me, Tusk. Uh, yeah. In a in a very unenviable position of having to deal with our twats. Yeah, of, exactly uh, that. Of leaders, so yeah. have yeah. to get a lot of Is people around the table. Yeah. Oh, who knew? Probably lots of people, not me. Jen, speaking of some of our finest hours, let me take you back to lockdown. <laughs> I know it was very stressful for you, indeed, for most. Uh But I wonder, can you remember how long it took the government to notice that millions of people were living alone? Come on, guys, even Miss Havisham had some company and she was horrible. 
about six months. I mean, arguably, they never did. But here we go. In June <laughs> 2020, BJ announced that we could join other people's bubbles. But he didn't mention people living alone specifically. Instead, he no. said he knew that many old people lived alone and that it was hard for them. Mm. This is the good news section, by the way. So be excited by what's coming. Still, it's not worth getting annoyed about, really, because single people, and by that I mean people living alone, don't even get the shitty end of the stick. Most of the time, we get none of the stick at all. Despite the fact that 30% of households in Europe contain just one person. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it is. A lot of them will be old. Yeah. That's widows, that's divorcees, me. Yes, a third of this podcast, so yeah. And so to Belgium, which our friend Simon keeps telling us is the place to be, where a council in Wallewi, Saint-Pierre, Saint-Pierre, well, I don't know how that's pronounced. I should probably have learned it. Send me a message when you hear this, Simon. Which is on the outskirts of Brussels. It has agreed to consider the impact of policies on people who live alone. Councillor Carla de Jongi persuaded her municipality to start viewing policies through the eyes of people who live alone. It is a milestone, she said. For the first time, a municipality is committing to examining its policies through the lens of a singleton. Nobody's ever thought about it. No shit, Carla. No shit. But, I mean, really well done to that woman. And if it turns out she lives with her husband and kids, even more so. When I was a civil servant, they had to do a thing that I have asked on Twitter like a thousand times in the last sort of, I don't know how long I've not been a civil servant for, like nine years, something like that, whether or not they just don't have to do it anymore. Because it always seems to me that like, (laughs) it doesn't seem like they do it. Uh, They're supposed to do an impact assessment. Well, they did back in the day used to do an impact assessment that looked at policies to see if it had an adverse impact on specific groups of like, I guess, marginalised people. I would have thought like old people would be one of those groups. I think like over a certain age constitutes as vulnerable, doesn't it? So like, I mean, obviously not all people who live alone are old or indeed vulnerable, but yeah, like that just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You're supposed to think about the impact of things on specific groups of people. So why not? Never single people. I mean, I moan about this absolutely constantly. In fact, the article that I found about this said, and I'm paraphrasing, it's hard to be single because... You pay more income tax and you have to pay things like single supplements on holidays. And I thought that exactly proves my point because single supplements on holidays is the last of it. I pay 25% more council tax than people who aren't single. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I pay 75% yeah, yeah. to live in a house yeah, by it's myself. Loads of stuff. It's, it's, it, costs, it costs more to heat a property if you've yeah. got one income coming in. It costs more to eat if you're feeding one person because food is not really designed for one person it's designed for more than one person it, it, everything costs more when and you food know that like, is designed for of one scale. person is not half the price as food designed for two people no exactly yeah no everything is more expensive when you're on your and yeah like i'm you know i'm not single and i, I do live with a, a child and, and whatever but like i i get it like i'm a single income household so yeah, yeah it's it's shit yeah well hopefully other people might say this in Belgium to start with, spread it out, and we'll do nothing because we're no longer part of the EU. Oh, more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. 
It's that time of the week where we ask, how dreamy is violence against women and girls? As we reveal, in inverted commas, the face of bona fide babe magnet Jack the Ripper. Oh dear God. Have you read this article, Hannah? Have you seen the pictures? I saw what you're about to say. I saw Holly talking about it. Yeah. A New York Post article was brought to my attention over the weekend by historian and excellent person Holly Rubenhold, who you might remember has been on the podcast a couple of times. Among other things, she wrote The Five about victims of the infamous 19th century serial killer. However, you don't really need to be an expert to know that what AI thinks the notorious prostitute killer, uh, which is a a quote, by the way, looks like is exactly a scoop. Prostitute killer, FYI, like I said, that is a quote, which is both factually incorrect and gross. So thanks for that, New York Post. Anyway, it turns out that AI, the cast iron source AI, <laughs> thinks that old Jack might have been oh, a bit of a hottie. In fact, move over Ted Bundy, the publication explains. Oh, for oh, sake. There's nothing. Yep. There is nothing hotter than disembowelment. If you needed this story, in inverted commas, those are my inverted commas, uh, to be any sketchier, the images are based on one suspect. Of course, anyone who's ever heard of this case knows that there are quite a few theories around this, actually. More ridiculous still are the descriptions of the images that AI has dreamt up, such as dangerously dreamy and dashing with a darkly alluring wild-eyed energy. I mean, no shit. I mean, sure to thing. the wild-eyed yeah. energy bit, not <laughs> yeah. to the dashing. Yeah. Certainly a wild-eyed look up. Anyway, look, besides this article not being worth the phone call to Jeff in Carmarthen, who came up with the images using AI-enhanced software, or indeed the oxygen I've expended on talking about it, (laughs) it is worth saying that it also demonstrates a really rank attitude to women, an attitude that Hallie has gone to great lengths to discourage for her work. So I will let her have the last say on this. Shame on the New York Post for the fawning language they use to praise a murderer of women. Utterly repulsive. The New York Post should understand that they are helping to normalise and praise violence against women. Hear, hear. Yeah, too fucking right, Hallie. What I find strange about, about the Jack the Ripper thing more than is that you do quite often get... Do you remember the Boston Marathon bomber? Not the one that was yeah. killed, the one that went on the run. And there's those photographs yeah. when he was first arrested. I think he was found hiding in a boat. And, like, teenage girls went absolutely fucking wild about ho- how hot he was. There was also a guy in Sexy America. psycho. There was a mugshot of him. And I have to say he was beautiful. I do oh, remember I know. That. You mean the hot felon? The hot felon, The yeah. hot felon, yeah. yeah. And now <laughs> I, I get... Jeremy Meeks, I think he's called. I yeah. get that teenage girls are a bit confused about this mm. stuff. But the weird thing about Jack the Ripper is that it all appears to be men who seem to, like, get all misty-eyed about him. And I know that's so troubling. Yeah, why is that? Why are you finding it so borderline sexual to talk about this guy who kills women? I don't know. Uh, it's, I don't know. The original hot fella, no? My God, if Jack the Ripper was alive, you absolutely know he'd be working for Balenciaga, don't you? All right, Mickey here with an advert for better help therapy online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? 
Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression. And while over time, and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Why, it? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution, in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up, and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. I am joined by the fantastic and much-loved actor Lindsay Duncan and indeed writer and director Emily Burns, currently starring in and directing Dear Octopus at the National Theatre, which I came to see on Wednesday night and it was incredible. So congratulations to you both. It's a it's a fantastic show. Dear Octopus, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a play by Dodie Smith. Emily, I'll start with you if that's OK. Could you tell me a little bit about the play? Dodie Smith, who's best known for either the novel I Capture the Castle or 101 Dalmatians, was a playwright before she was a novelist. By the time Dear Octopus was first staged in 1938, she was the most successful female playwright to have been performed in the West End, um, heavily celebrated and lauded not only by the press but also by her peers. Dear Octopus was her fifth play and she started writing while she was a shop assistant at Heels, having trained at RADA and not had a huge amount of success as an actor herself. Her first play was Autumn Crocus, uh, based on a sort of an experience that she had had. And this is her sort of most celebrated play, but it was last performed in the West End in 1967 and hasn't been seen since. It's set at the Golden Wedding anniversary of Dora and Charles, who are the mother and father, grandfather and grandmother, great-grandfather and great-grandmother at the head of the Randolph house. And it has the return of all of their living children, grandchildren and new great-grandchild to celebrate from Friday evening through to Sunday evening. 
can I ask you, how does this kind of thing work? Is it something where like the theatre sets the programme and then approaches you or do you sort of take the idea to the theatre and say, hey, this is, you know, this is a play that I want to direct? How, how does that sort of side of things work? But both of those and and other forms, this specific play, I had directed um, a play by Richard Bean and Ollie Chris called Jack Absolute Flies Again in the Olivier in the summer of 2022. And uh, that's one that I had been asked to do. And as that was opening, Rufus, the artistic director, invited me to do a, an, another production at the theatre and Gates suggested it should be the Littleton and asked me to think about what I would like to do. And so then Dear Octopus was completely my a text I arrived at and presented back to the theatre and with lots of help and mediation from the studio who facilitated readings and discussions around lots of different works. Yeah, I think it's been a surprise to a lot of people that it has been programmed given no one knows of it or seems to know of it. And we definitely had some robust discussions about the idea of trying to revive something like this that hasn't had a particularly prevalent life um, since it was written. I read it first in 2000 and maybe 18 and I thought nothing happened in it and found it very superficial and discarded it entirely. But in this project of looking for a play I'd be interested in doing, I found it had sat in my mind for strange reasons that we could come on to, but I reread it and I don't know, just being a bit older, being more aware of my parents and the finiteness of time you get to spend with your family, having my own child and discovering that that doesn't make me feel any older when I'm in my parents' house than I did when I was a, a child myself. But that by the time I read it again, I, I felt like everything happens in this play and it was a thing I really wanted to put on the stage, this kind of mediation on the, really on the cost and on the value of being part of a group, in this case, a family. But I think that's the the beauty of the play. And, and my sort of provocation was, I think this could be done in a really committed and detailed and immaculate way that would liberate from this veneer of lightheartedness, a much deeper and more resonant story about the ties that bind us and the way that we pull away from them. And um, the theatre agreed to the idea of it and the first thing that we thought about was who should play Dora and I had worked with Lindsay as an associate in the Littleton in 2019 on Hansard by Simon Woods and in trying to think of who was the person that would be able to deliver the charisma and the likability of that central character but someone who would not shy away at all from the integrity and the truth in it and, and try and find a way through it that was deeply, deeply felt. And I sort of thought, well, I'll ask Lindsay and if she says yes, it will all be brilliant. <laughs> and if she says no, I've got no idea what we'll do. So, Lindsay, can I ask you what attracted you to the role of Dora and, and the play, I guess, in, in general? Well, I'm, I'm just batting straight back now. And I really do mean this. Uh, you know, my starting point was Emily. She wrote to me and I had wanted to work with her in the role of director um, since uh, we, we worked together on, on Hansard. So that was something, you know, at the back of my head is maybe one day, you know, I would. So I was immediately interested. 
Then I read the play and I was very moved by the play, but I had all the obvious questions bouncing around in my head that it's easy for this play to inhabit a rather dated place. I didn't think that Emily was going to do that, but you have to have that conversation. Really? You know, can we do this and 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 how to not deny its place in time, but to bring all these characters to life with a sort of truth, a kind of discretion, actually, because the, the comedy in it can run away with you. It's a funny play. And, and if you just go with that and don't take care of the integrity of these characters, you're in a slightly more superficial world. And that is really denying Dodie Smith her her skill. So having had the obligatory phone conversation, which I don't know what we said apart from, mm, yeah, <laughs> Yes, I, I really wanted to, to do it because I think it's a subtle business putting this on stage. And I, I honestly think that Emily has achieved that. I also, I felt that I wanted to be in a company because the last couple of plays I've done have been, you know, two or three people. And there was something very appealing about the democracy of this play where everybody has the light shone on them at one point or another. We are, and I love that, I, being in a company where we're holding the play together. It's a gorgeous thing to do. You know, you're really on the front line together. You know, you're discovering things together. It's the most human, wonderful, moving, creative process. And I, for some reason, was in the mood to do that. So we are a company, a, a, a fine company, a good bunch of people. So all of those things, really, You've mentioned it there, Lindsay. One of the things that I thought as I was watching it is that there are parts of it, some of the themes of the play are quite dated. Like They they don't feel shocking anymore. But obviously there are other themes in the play that I think are completely timeless, you know. And, and, and one of those, that obviously the, the idea about the family and, and as you said, Emily, the idea that you go back to your parents' house and, and you are forever sort of in that family dynamic. But I thought one of the really sort of moving moments is when uh, Cynthia and Dora are talking about ageing. It's kind of set up like there's a tension between Belle and Dora and, and this sort of sniping about ageing, but actually then Dora has this bit where she talks about it and she's so at ease with it and and the process of ageing. And I thought it was really refreshing to see a female character so apparently at ease with that. The thing is, Dora has deep convictions. I mean, that is something that is um, a tricky area to explore with a modern audience is that, you know, there's always a part of the audience that, that isn't prepared to take her religious convictions seriously. And you have to really try and plant a flag somewhere about this woman. You know, she's uh, funny. I mean, every character's funny at some point. But actually, she really, really does hold deep-rooted Christian beliefs. And one of the interesting things about that, and we all felt this, was that she has been married for 50 years in love in respect to an atheist. In 1938, that's quite something. I mean, most people went to church, whether they had deep convictions or not, but they just did, especially if you lived in a village. But they have both managed to hold on to their own belief system, 
or lack of belief and still respect and love each other. I think that's really interesting and I think it's very modern because there's so much about this play, which is about, you know, you can't just swipe at people and disagree with them and then try to, you know, punish them or walk away from them. We do have to find a way, you know, we have to in the family module and we have to in the greater world you know i don't think this is a preachy play at all but i think it carries the weight of you know what nothing's perfect families we kind of we do we need some kind of model to give us support and love and all of that and those models are changing as they absolutely should all the time but nothing's perfect so what do you do do you walk away or do you live with it the thing between Belle, her um, sister-in-law, the, 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 the one who's fighting age, is interesting because there's a great deal of comedy in it. They've known each other on and off for a very, very long time. But the the other note in, and why Dora, who really doesn't care much about ageing, is that Belle has you know, had her eye on Dora's husband for a very, very long time, and there it is. But Dora might be mildly irritated enough to have a swipe at this woman who's dyed her hair and wears more makeup and all the rest of it. But actually, she's fine. She's made her choice in life. Her choice is to be married to a decent man, to have six children, and make a life out of that. And there is their most wonderful thing articulated by Dora's husband, Charles, that you know, happiness is really important. And, you know, we make our own happiness. You do what you can. So he hasn't achieved anything of any great note, but what he has achieved and what they've both achieved is happiness, particularly for her when she thinks one of her children is deeply unhappy. It's not a conflict between them. It's a source of pain. The, the, you know, she has old-fashioned family values, but she changes. And that's interesting. And it's very modern coming from Dodie that this woman who's done something God, I could never do, uh, you know, <laughs> just put those roots down, born six children, you know, and and hacked this life, a really good life. It's very interesting to me that she, you know, it, she articulates that she has changed her anxiety about morals and, you know, having sex outside marriage. In the face of love, things change. If you honestly love people, you can change. You're totally right that the the story about what Cynthia has done and the reason she stayed away is in no way shocking to a modern audience. But the thing I've found fascinating has been the thing I hinted at was when I remembered the play, I thought, oh, yeah, there wasn't much in that. But there was that daughter who was a lesbian. And then I reread the play and she wasn't, obviously. it's a bit, She's been with a man in Paris. But the number of people my age who are queer who have said the Dora Cynthia scene is my experience of coming out to my parents, mm. of them going, I don't really know what this is. I wasn't raised to understand it it wasn't part of my world but I love you and it's not going to change that and so on a structural level it's an incredibly modern idea 
and and something that will I think will affect every generation of the version of yourself that you are true to and the point at which you share that to your parent as who you are not the person they raised you as and what that negotiation is mm. and that is I think the the modern thing that happens in that scene that really we think of I certainly had consigned that arena of history to one in which a conversation like that would never happen and you would just have kept that quiet and lived a sort of repressed upset life and so the idea that that sort of family negotiation is is put on stage in this period and the outcome is a happy one is sort of staggering for me. Was there any temptation on your part to put it in a more modern context or were you always clear that this is sort of how you wanted to do it? No, very clear. It was 1938. And actually, there are various interventions that I have made to really confront the reality of that period. The the reviews of the play on its presentation in 1938 all mention the Munich crisis because it is the agreement to visit Hitler once again is made in between the first and second acts on the night that this play premieres. Mm. And the the thing we all know that World War II for Britain begins in September 1939, but in 1938, they didn't know it was a year away. They thought it was tomorrow. And so the idea that this play doesn't confront war, but is setting itself in 1938 was fascinating to me. And then there are, there's two moments at the very beginning that are 100% Dodie, one is the youngest couple, Hugh and Laurel, who were in there, who were 20 and 21, mm-hmm. talking about the death of his father in World War One at exactly the same age as Hugh is, which has to be a conversation of saying, I think you're going to die. Happen to your dad, it'll happen to you. And then there's Nicholas saying, it's something like the cheek to philosophize about the tragedy of growing old. You know, I only missed the war by inches, but he is exactly in conscription age. And so... The idea of this family who've suffered in World War One, as every family in in Britain in that period would have done, aren't really willing to talk about that. And absolutely are not talking about the thing that's coming, but it must be in their minds. And it was in the world that Dodie is writing the play from. And that for me was also a big part of what's happening in the play is a family in all sorts of ways making small sacrifices to stay together in a greater sense. But they were also all making the micro, as in micro versus macro, micro sacrifice of not allowing the outside world to enter this weekend that can only happen on this weekend that will only happen once, which I also felt is something that we, in terms of our relationship to family and the last four years, is something that everyone has confronted in some way. What happens when you all get back together again, having been forced to be apart? And particularly what happens when you get together again with your family, knowing you're going to be forced apart again soon? So, yes, I couldn't imagine why moving it from 1938 would be to the benefit of the human story in it. Obviously, you've got the the wireless and and the, the news. So the fact that we are on the you know the brink of war does sort of hang over the scene and I, I did find that very moving I have to say. Lindsay you're the matriarch Dora and Dora as you said has had six children two of whom we know have died and grief is is one of the themes. There's a line in the play which I thought was um, very funny where Charles says to Dora Cynthia was always your favourite or, or something along those lines and she's like oh no 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 one has favourites but uh, you know she's just the one that I happen to like the best. I wondered who do you like best of Dora's children? Do you have a favourite? <laughs> <No. 
<laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I love them all equally. <laughs> Emily, do you have a favourite? I oscillate wildly between them. In fact, one um, one point in the last few weeks was discovering, well, we talked a lot about Hilda and Dora's relationship and the realisation that they don't say anything positive about each other. And it felt like a real wrench in the room to go, maybe you're struggling with each other. No, but we love each other. Everyone loves each other. You know, that was that's a sort of, you know, uh, people versus character thing happening. I know I don't have a favourite, but I've described this play sometimes as for the audience a choose your own adventure. I think you find the person that feels that they reflect your family dynamic and then follow them with more interest than anyone else. And so I suppose I um, was really interested in the, Marjorie as the, the person with children in a family, dealing with having their own children with their own mother there. Are they an adult? Are they a child? What is the cost benefit of their children? How's that, you know, measuring out? What's it like when you're confronted with somebody that hasn't had children? And so I, I had various points of special interest, but no, I'd say no, no favourites. Lindsay, we've just seen you on TV in True Love on, on Channel 4 with the insanely amazing cast uh, of Clark Peters and Sue Johnson, which is a show that's entirely focused on, on the over 70s. Was that a sort of refreshing thing to work on? Oh, it was, absolutely. It couldn't be more different from the character I'm playing in Dear Octopus. And so, you know, sometimes the, the timing of things is such that, you know, you, you get too completely different challenges almost one after the other and that's really interesting yeah it was a great cast it's an easier way of life you know get looked after in a way that you you can't in theatre you know and and I know I mean it wasn't like high high budget or anything but it is you know if, if you don't turn up then obviously they can't shoot and they will put you in a car. And uh, it, it, you, you are looked after. It's different. So energy levels are easier to maintain, I think. And and it's very, I've said this before, actually, it's very interesting as an older person that I'm playing two women of completely the same, of my age, you know, what am I, 73. And yet I feel much older playing Dora mm. because of the, you know, the woman who has made a very different life from the one I have, whereas, although <laughs> I haven't got a lot in common with Phil in True Love, <laughs> it, she's a modern woman. You know, she she has agency in a different way. She's living in a completely different world. Uh, it's 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 very interesting how it's made me feel. So, Dear Octopus is showing at the Littleton Theatre, at the National Theatre, until the 27th of March. Are you able to tell me anything about anything that's coming next for either of you, or are you just focusing on this for the time being? No, Emily is. Yes, on on, uh, Monday, I start rehearsals for Love's Labour's Lost at the RSC, which is the, the first show under their new artistic directors, Daniel Evans and Tamara Harvey. So I'm uh, looking forward to that. I'm going on holiday, possibly for the rest of the year. I'm very jealous. I'm really of that. looking forward. To, I know. Sorry, Emily, but you know, lovely. Well yeah. deserved. Okay, thank you both so much okay. for thank chatting you. to me, and it's it's a fantastic production. So again, congratulations to you both. Thank you very much. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by another Hannah. Other mm. Hannahs always welcome on this podcast. Hannah Walker whose show Gamble is on tour now. Excited? Very excited. Very excited. I do keep thinking of everything that I need to remember, like little things 
And just now I'm driving and I'm taking a few people in my car and my car is covered in kids' rubbish <laughs> and shoes. And just now I was like, oh, I must do that. I must do that. But yes, I'm excited to take the show out and get it around the UK. Gamble, as the name suggests, is about gambling. And mm-hmm. it is based on a personal experience. So I'm going to start with asking you what that personal experience is. Of course. I have no experience of gambling apart from when I was so I'm from a, the middle of nowhere and I used to go to the village bingo every Saturday when <laughs> I was about 14. And there were all these lovely older ladies and we used to all play bingo together. So that was my only experience really with gambling. And then I met my partner who I'm still with now and we're very happy. <laughs> we're getting married next year, actually. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So I'd met him and I knew he liked a fruit machine, but I didn't know to what extent until we'd actually had our first child and we'd got a joint account then. And then things kept, like in hindsight now, I probably should have realised, but at the time I didn't. And then um, basically it all came out and he'd been gambling a lot of money. And when I first found out, I didn't want to tell anyone, didn't want to tell my family, my friends, because I was so scared that they would judge my partner because he's lush. he's absolutely lush. And and there's such a stigma attached to a gambler. And I, I was aware of that and I was so scared to say anything. So we just secretly went to Gamblers Anonymous and Gammonon and who were incredible. So Gammonon's the support group for friends and families. Yeah, so. like Alanon. Yeah, 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 yeah really 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 helpful and then I started to share my story and it was the more I started to talk about it both of us we both started he became more especially after it was about seven months he'd been he hadn't gambled and the more we talked about it the more people started talking to us and it really helped it became a bit like therapy for for me and Nelson and then my co-creator came on board and we decided obviously that's what I do I make shows so I didn't by this point I was talking about it much more and yeah we at the start, it was just me, my partner, and Rosa Postlethwaite. And we we just talked so much about gambling. And then my partner was a consultant. And yeah, the show just became... It was very small to begin with. Then it became bigger and bigger. And we got more. That is why I'm doing a show about gambling, because of my partner. There's loads of stuff in there I'd like to talk to you yeah. about. I am, as our listeners will know, I am surrounded by addicts in my life. I do know a gambler. Gambling's pretty normalised within my family. We always played cards for money from quite a young age. My uncles liked to go and put a bet on a horse. They all did what I would describe as quite long-term gambling, which isn't any kind of a technical term, but you you pick who you think you're going to win the World Cup, and then two weeks later you find out who does or who doesn't. Nobody appeared to be in gambling for the short reward gambling, and then someone got into online poker, And the spiral was incredible. It was really terrifying to watch. And I have to say, I've never gambled online and I've never been near a fruit machine in my life because I just feel, I don't know, there's something quite terrifying and there's something so short term, there's something so put a coin in, didn't win, put another coin in, didn't win, that when you said that, I actually (laughs) felt horrified. I knew he liked a fruit machine, but it was online gambling. That was what he lost all of his money on. Um, but it's so secretive, so I didn't know that yeah. that was happening. And it's so commonly advertised. I can't tell you. I was watching something. I don't watch a lot of ITV, but I was watching something uh, on the ITV X, the player, mm. online. And almost every advert was for bingo. Almost every advert was for online bingo. It was quite 
full on i have to say not real money it feels like it's not i yeah. think that's like and it's so accessible you have like the in play and you can do it on your phone and be watching television at the same time i think it's just so big like and there's so many access like the ways to access it online and yeah it's terrifying it terrifies me that's a problem and and we, we've talked about this on the podcast again but it bears repeating i i've got i've got a friend actually he's he's no longer alive but he he died a couple of years ago who had in the past been addicted to heroin and mm. he used to say that actually you don't see people selling heroin in the corner shop mm. and that's kind of the problem when you're addicted to something that's legal like gambling is it's everywhere it's in the pub there's one sitting in the pub there's sometimes they're in a fish or yeah. I don't know if they still are but they used to be in fish and chip shops if you went in yeah. there there'd be a fruit machine and it's in your own home you don't have to go out for it. I wrote a song in my show actually about, well, I'm not a singer, but I do like to write songs. So I do talk about that in my show. <laughs> I think the difference between gambling as well, because it's so hidden, if you have a drug or an alcohol addiction, you can see the physicalities changing in someone over mm-hmm. time. Whereas gambling, you can't. And this it terrifies me though, you know, since making the show, the amount of people who message me now, who I know... Or like, you know, just people from the past and things who then contact me. And there's so, well, it's it's 44% of the entire population gamble. Yeah, it terrifies me. You said that you were concerned about what people would think. And I, and I get that completely because that's why I didn't always tell people my dad was an alcoholic. Because then they just assumed that he was sitting on a bench drinking out of a, mm. you know, out of a brown paper bag or something. And that that is not what it is. What do you think the cliche of a gambler is? And then how did your experience differ from that? I didn't specifically know what a gambler was or what I I didn't perceive. I didn't think about what I thought a gambler would be. I think I just, I didn't realise that it could be so hidden. I think I just thought of gambling as someone going to a bookies and spending the day there and yeah. not seeing family because they're in there. I didn't think of it as happening all the time when I'm there with the kids, like, and not knowing that that was happening. So I don't think I had a judgment of what a gambler was in the sense of, I didn't expect it to be happening because I thought of a gambler as someone who would, yeah, go to the races and spend loads and loads of money. I didn't think it'd be happening in front of my eyes without me having a clue it was going on. Yeah. You said that you thought people would lack sympathy, which, again, I understand. I think that, in general, happens with all addiction. There is an element of, come on, pull yourself together, you're weak. I, I don't gamble every day and therefore you shouldn't exactly. gamble every day. What do you think that we need to do to to try and create more sympathy? I think we need to talk about it more. It does feel like it's happening a little bit. like Or maybe it's because I made the show and I'm very aware and I've been talking about it for a long time that it does feel like it's getting more topical about it. But I think talking about it so it's not a case of... Like when I found someone who had a similar situation to me, I instantly like would bond with them and it was this connection like no other yeah. because there was no one else I could talk about it with so it was it was lovely when there were a few people that I met during the journey and and I think it shouldn't be like that and I don't know how you change that or you stop it all I know is the more I talk about it the more people talk to me about it yeah okay well you are starting a conversation so let's talk about the show oh yes okay what can people expect when they come to see Gamble so it's a comedy ironically it's fun there's singing and there's dancing debatable singing again I'm not a great singer but I've always wanted to be a singer and but obviously it's sad and it deals with a really sad subject that causes 
a lot of sadness for people. So the story is based on obviously my experience, but it's also informed by interviews that I've had with gambling industry experts and family members, compulsive gamblers and health professionals as well. So it's a concoction of all these things in this. It's very multimedia as well. There's lots of interaction, like the gambling world, which is bang, 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 like in your face. Um, there's a lot of different interactions between projections and sound. And it's BSL integrated as well. Excellent. Because, well, we found that there's no, not much support at all for deaf gamblers. So the whole show is integrated. So we do, we, do, we have the hour long show and then we also have the post show which is BSL interpreted. And then in the morning following a show, we have a coffee morning, which people can come and again, continue the conversation. Because like I said, it really helped me to talk about it. So if, if people want to share their stories and that's BSL interpreted. And there's also a chance to access help there. And we have like letter templates to change makers and so we can do something about it. You, you have like a Q&A session afterwards, aren't you? Yeah, Dr. Matt Gaskell. He's clinical lead and consultant psychologist for the NHS Northern Gambling Service. And he's great. When I was doing my interviews the show, I interviewed a um, pro-gambling company. And I was pregnant at the time, actually. And they did want me to be in an advert for them. And they were going to give me money, which I really needed at the time. But I was like, no, I'm not doing that, obviously. But I, I, I they knew about the show and I wanted to tell them what I was doing and stuff. And they chose to have the interview with me. But because I was pregnant as well, they were like, oh, this is great because we're really accessible and, and wanting me to be there pregnant and be like, oh, it's a family occasion. We can all go to the slot machines and gamble together. I wrote a response song to this <laughs> interview. But in, which is in the show, but it was just really, it was really interesting to listen to that. They believed that they were doing really good things. But yeah, the, back to that, that was just the whole thing because I was a woman and I was pregnant. It, oh, it's so cynical, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, you're pregnant. That's amazing, amazing. And I was like, this is ridiculous. You, you seem to, from the conversation we had before, be in a much, much more positive place now. What has worked for you as a couple and obviously for your partner individually? So he relapsed in 2020 when it was lockdown. And lockdown obviously was the worst thing for ga- every everyone. It was shit, but sorry, language. Um, no, that's but, fine. Um, it was shit. <laughs> it was shit. But Eve gambling was even more prevalent. I bet. So I found out he'd been gambling again. So I'd already started making the show. And then we were going on a camping trip, actually, and we are were on the way and then I discovered that he'd been gambling and it was this massive moment in my head when I just when I first found out he'd been gambling I was like well that that's it like if this ever happens again you're finished we're done we're done we're done and I'd learned so much from making the show that I actually thought we're just so honest and before I realized it he went back to that secretive person he became again and I hated that I hated it so much so as soon as it came out again it's so open and I think we have a much more open relationship than we ever did. Like it wasn't a bad relationship before, but it's it's so open now. We've got things in place now as well. Do you mean like practical sites you can't visit? Or just like I have all access to bank accounts and everything. And okay. I just to think I know we can't gamble again. And if, if um, and you can't gamble with a credit card, but obviously we've got stuff in place in case it feels like something and he's very I think if he was to become hidden or secretive again I instantly know something is not right I do feel like it's been therapy for both of us 
Like we have a much better relationship now. In the show, I'm not saying like, oh yeah, look at us. We we're fine. We've we've overcome gambling and now we have a really happy life. Like it's something I'm still learning to live with. But yes, although it's good for us, it's not that doesn't mean I believe that people should stay with someone who's an addict. I really hope that people come along to see this. I can't because I'm actually oh. on holiday for the period that this is on, apart from when you're but up in the north. We are going to go to the Fringe for the month as well. Oh, excellent. Uh, so we've got two venues that we're just chatting between. Um, Speaking of huge amounts of money, you're going to get to the Fringe. Exactly. So I'm going to basically, I'm paying myself out of the pay that I should be getting to do this show to support me to go to the Fringe. But I really want to. I've got to go this year. Like, Yeah. I'm determined to go this year. Are you going on maths? Are you taking the whole family? Taking, no. So I'm going to stay in a campsite. So the family are going to come. So my partner's dad's got a camper van. So I'm staying in a caravan with the techie and Rosa. And then they're going to come over at weekends. But my daughter's eight. I mean, no, what? She's not eight. That's a complete lie. She's six. But she'll be seven (laughs) when we go. And I feel like she can come up anyway and play around. My My son's two, so he's wouldn't be able to do that but she's desperate to see the show actually oh excellent thank you so much for your time hannah where can people one last thing where can people get hold of you if they want to know more Uh, so my website uh is i look like i'm in love with myself it's called the hannahwalker.com but it's just it was hannah walker already taken so i was like (laughs) what Uh, bitch stole that i know (laughs) you can contact me on there and i've got you can email me um i've got my details on there I would love to hear from people. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Hannah. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, where we are pivoting with excitement as we discuss all things women's sport. So we'll start off with a bit of football because, as you know from my intro, I was at the Arsenal-Manchester United WSL game at the weekend and it was an absolutely cracking day. It was sold out, as I said, so a really great atmosphere, really nice place to take kids. I had Lyra with me and my bestie Vera had her baby with her and very affordable, apart from the Scampion chips, which was uh, not £17.75 worth of Scampion chips in my humble opinion, but you know, there you go. Arsenal beat Man U 3-1 and it was a nightmare start for the visitors after Katie McCabe's corner deflected off Yez to net an own goal in the 10th minute. But they ended the first half 3-0 up after Chloe Lacasse scored in the 35th and Kim Little converted a penalty after Beth Mead was brought down in the box. It was great to see Mead back in action. Leah Williamson was absent with a minor hamstring injury, which has actually forced her to withdraw from the England squad, unfortunately. And that is for friendlies at the end of this week and beginning of next. I'm not sure she would have done too much in those anyway, to be fair. She's been out for a very long time and she's yet to play a full 90 minutes. Obviously, it's going to be massively frustrating for her, however. It's tight at the top of the WSL table with Chelsea and City level on 34. And Arsenal in third place with 31. United are in fourth place, but there is a big gap. Seven points between them and a Champions League spot at the moment. I am really excited to see Charlton Athletic challenging for a promotion next season. They were top of the championship at the weekend, but are now level on points with Crystal Palace. That's me spitting, by the way. And Southampton on 30 points. Sunderland top the table with 31, so even tighter there. That said... 
As far as Charlton Athletic are concerned, we've got a game in hand. So, you know, come on, you addicts. Moving on, the Netball Super League is back and indeed back with a bang. For those of you who don't know much about it, it's a 10-club league and it is the UK's top-level netball competition. It first kicked off in 2005 and there have been six champions in that time. Loughborough Lightning and Manchester Thunder have dominated in the last few years, but Loughborough are the title holders currently. Team Bath are the most successful of all time in the tournament, although it's, you know, it's been a while since they won a title, it's fair to say. The season will end with semi-finals and a grand final in June. After the opening weekend's action, seven stars are top of the league, just above Manchester Thunder, but they've got the same points and indeed goal difference. Goalkeeper Jazz Brown was player of the match as the stars beat Leeds Rhinos 57-41. Loughborough took a big win against Surrey Storm with the help of Bella Bayliss. They won 63-50 after she came on as a sub. It would have been a particularly emotional day for Ella Clark, who returned for Loughborough 622 days since she last appeared in the Netball Super League. And she ruptured her ACL within two minutes of the 2022 Grand Final. Not going to lie to you, maths isn't my strong point, but I make that just shy of two years. That is a long, long time out, so props to her for making it back on the court. Manchester Thunder showed intent with a 56-40 win over London Pulse. Meanwhile, Team Bath edged 53-49 past Strathclyde Sirens, and the Cardiff Dragons drew 48 all with the Saracens Mavericks. If you want to watch any of this play out, it's available on Sky Sports and tickets for you know to go and see the matches live are also available via the netballsl.com website. That's all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film full of authentic frontier gibberish did we watch this week? This week, we watched Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles, its button-pushing Looney Tunes spoof of the Western genre, which hit US screens in February 1974 before coming to the UK that June. It netted Warner Brothers a cool $119.5 million, not bad for a movie that was nearly ditched after the executive screening. Still, studio head John Kelly said, fuck it, just get it out in the cinemas and see what happens. And the <laughs> rest is ka-ching, ka-ching a swathe of Oscar and BAFTA nods, a place in the National Film Registry and status as a bona fide classic. Big hoo-ha is made of the fact Richard Pryor was one of the five writers on Blazing Saddles, but another of the writers, Andrew Bergman, describes the writer's room as a rioter's room and Pryor actually left after the first draft was written. What Brooks had to say on the experience is also worth noting. There were five of us all yelling loudly for our ideas to be put into the movie. Not only was I the loudest, but luckily I also had the writer's director to decide what was in or out. Quite, Mel Brooks, quite. Critics weren't sure, apart from Roger Ebert. Can we start calling him Roger? I feel like he's one of our friends, <laughs> uh, one of our <laughs> sadly dead friends, who loved it a whole four stars out of four. Others took umbrage with the juvenile sense of humour and wholehearted embrace of vulgarity that runs through Brooks films like Blackpool Through Rock. Warner Brothers wouldn't allow Brooks to cast Pryor and so top billing goes to Cleveland Little as the conspicuously black Sheriff Bart slash Bugs Bunny appointed to fail but deciding instead to save the town of Rockridge 
entirely populated with massive racists, apart from Gene Wilder's Jim the Waco Kid, once a fast shooter, now a fast drinker, but a true friend. The world premiere took place on February the 7th, 1974, at the Pickwick Driving Theatre in Burbank, where 250 invited guests, including Little and Wilder, watched the film on horseback. Because of course they did. <laughs> I'm hopeful you both watched this side saddle, yeah? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of manure in my lounge now, but, you know. Had you seen it before? Oh, God, yeah. Like, dozens of times. Dozens. Jen? No, never. We knew Hannah had seen it before because she's very giddy about when a man punches a horse. And, you know, I fucking love animals, <laughs> but it did still make me laugh very, very hard. The plot, well, oh, quite frankly, it's fucking ridiculous. I mentioned Looney Tunes earlier, and that's because I found this film much easier to get into and get along with if I pretended it was a cartoon, which is no insult to Brooks at all, who at one point uses the Looney Tunes theme tune to underline a scene. Don't worry, though, I'm confident we'll get to insulting Brooks a little bit later. Anyway, quicksand means a railroad is being diverted through the town of Rock Ridge, which stands to be a boon for developers. Particularly Harvey Corman's Attorney General, Headley Lamar. It's Headley! <laughs> who, in a bid to get the residents out, has his goon, Taggart, that's Slim Pickens, kill the town sheriff, there's been a murder, and convinces the governor, Brooks in one of three roles, which is uh, three more than I needed, to be honest, to hire Bar in his place with the notion that racism will do the rest, meaning the town will be vulnerable to attack. And it's fair to say that the townsfolk aren't chuffed with a new appointment. But sweet, charming Jim, a.k.a. the Waco Kid, becomes a friend and an ally. And Bart's quick wits and way with a prank not only saves the town from Lamar's henchman, Mungo, but also wins over the townsfolk, leading to an apology from an old lady that genuinely made me spit Ribena out laughing, but which I cannot repeat. I mean, I guess I could repeat it, but I choose not to, and I do think that is the right choice. Lamar's next tactic is to send prime seductress Lily Von Stupp, played by Madeleine Kahn as part Marlena Dietrich, part Elmer Fudd, to seduce Bart. I'm not sure how this was going to work to change anything. Was she going to fuck him to death? But it doesn't matter because she falls in love with Bart, scuppering Lamar's plan. Furious that his schemes have backfired, Lamar recruits an army of thugs and then things get really, really silly. A fake town is made, fake people are made, the day is saved, racism is conquered, the fourth wall tumbles, custard pies are thrown and our heroes ride off into the sunset in a limo. So, by blazing saddle standards, some racism is bad and some racism, like Mel Brooks in Red Face, is Uh, okay. Ah, no seeds. I disagree with you on that. This is a satire about racism, but it's also a satire of Westerns. And Westerns, up until this point, in fact, uh, we've discussed this before, up until you're talking about Dances with Wolves and what's the Daniel Day-Lewis one, Last of the Mohicans, had exclusively cast white people or Mexicans as Indians and had dressed them in a variety of things cribbed from different tribes. So... By casting himself, a white man covered in every single thing you could imagine that a Native American tribe might wear at some point. It is a satire on how Hollywood treats Native Americans. So I don't think it's racist in that sense. Well, other racist things in it that I'm not sure were meant to be racist. Well, I want to ask, do you think that 50 years on, it still stands as a satire of racism? No. I think it's pretty solid and I think as a satire of racism within the Hollywood system, talking about 
this period, I think it is spot on. Jen, why do you disagree? You couldn't make that now. I don't even think a black person could make it now and use the language that they used. I'm not saying you could make it now, Jen. That's a different conversation. I hated it. Like five minutes in, they've dropped the N-word like 20 times, the F-word, whatever. I'm just, I hated it. I thought it was awful. I just, I couldn't get away from it. And there were bits in it like, you know, when the woman's trying to seduce him and she's like talking about the size of his cock and stuff like that. And it's just like, that's racist. That's not a satire. That's that's just racist. Like, it's, I just, no. But that's what the conversation about black men was in that period. Still is. I thought that was just a cheap joke. No, I, I hated it. I'm sorry. My powder is not dry here, but uh, yeah. No, fair enough. I wasn't really expecting you to like it, to be honest, Jen. What I will say is there was a lot of, oh, it wouldn't be made now because of the language used, because of the N-word, which yeah. is like littered and hits me like a slap every time it's used. And I think that is the point. Also, has no one seen any Quentin Tarantino? Django Unchained yeah. is exactly the same sort of amount of language, if not a bit more. And that is only, what, 12 or 13 yeah. years old. But I still don't think that could happen now. I hope not. I think that the tide has turned a little bit. Yeah, I think it has moved quite fast in the last decade. What I will say is I think it mostly does stand up. I agree with Hannah. I think all the racists in the film are portrayed as incapable and stupid, whereas the non-racist characters are smart and capable. Even Lamar, who's our villain, he never says anything racist. He just uses everyone else's stupidity and racism to his advantage. But in that particular scene... Where they're talking about the size of his penis, he's racist about himself. Cheap gags are absolutely Mel Brooks's stock in trade, for sure. And I'm not saying everything works, but I still think the idea of the film, the notion of him sending up the Western genre, which absolutely eradicated anyone black's involvement in the West when there were a lot of people of colour who were involved. And the Chinese. Chinese are building the railroad, which is one of the few historically accurate things in this film. But again... The historical inaccuracy is a parody of the way that Westerns were. So I think the the racism argument, I think it still holds as a satire with jokes that just don't make the cut anymore, for sure. Mm. No, I agree. That's where I am on it. When it comes to sexism and homophobia, however, it is Entirely a veritable free-for-all. Because rape's funny, isn't it? And rape's really yeah. funny. And also the way that Mungo is treated, mm, yes, I would say that yeah. is ableist. Having watched and hated the producers, as we did fairly recently, the treatment of women in this and indeed of gay people wasn't really a surprise, but still just utterly appalling. Well, yeah, I agree. But I have to say, having watched the producers recently, I was found myself coming away from this quite relieved. Well, the song that she does is pretty horrendous. It's a send-up, right, of yeah. burlesque, which does look very, very dated, absolutely. But there were very few women in these frontier towns. Because they were being, you know, mainly the men had gone off gold mining and, and all of that sort of stuff. And the women who did come and visit, I mean, if you've watched Deadwood or anything like that, they tended to be sex workers. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that's that song is like, you know, she's actually saying, you guys think I'm trying to be sexy for you, but I'm just knackered. You don't interest me. So I think it is still sort of making a point. Yeah. It's just horrible. I just, I just hated it. No, fair enough. I mean, I think it's meant to be brutal because her life would have been brutal. But I don't think that's funny. I don't think that's for lols. 
No, and that's fair enough. Uh, what I would also say is I'd argue no one finds Mel Brooks as funny as Mel Brooks finds himself. Yeah, I, I, I certainly find Agreed. himself a lot funnier than I find him. <laughs> totally. But... I will say there are some lines in this that are really, really, really funny. Which bits made you laugh, Hannah? Well, it's a lot of the historical inaccuracy is funny, some of which is is obvious. Like, for example, there's a bit where there are uh, Headley. Well, the Headley, Hedy Lamar joke is funny. There's a bit where Hedy quotes uh, a Frank Sinatra song. You know, there's and there's actually a really good joke where he says he's killed more people than Cecil B. DeMille. Mm. Yeah. Because that self and safety in, in Cecil B. DeMille films is crazy. Like, yeah, I mean, people did die on his sets. In fact, it's probably my favourite one of those expressions since Proposition Joe said that Brother Mizone had more bodies on him than a Chinese cemetery. Which is, <laughs> but actually, my favourite bit is a bit that Jen is probably going to hate. The line that made me laugh the most this time, because I think again it's a parody of racism, but Jen maybe doesn't. Is when they distract the Ku Klux Klan by Cleveland Little popping out and saying, "Yo, where the white women at?" No, I thought that was quite. Just... That was the only thing that I found remotely funny, <laughs> to be honest. And that genuinely makes me laugh. And the punch in the horse will always be always be funny why is it so funny i don't understand quite why it's so funny but it is very funny when he punches for that horse. whole scene in the church where they're all called johnson which doesn't actually make me laugh uh and, but they're all called johnson like howard johnson's a hotel chain in america so there's loads of like in jokes there that probably missed more stuff that's going on in that scene the fact that they're all talking about how the fathers came there and they grew up there is just to, yeah, to me that scene is just intrinsically funny because westerns always portray the idea that people have been there forever where this is 1874 i think only because 1874 is 100 years since when it was made i think it's the only period but like why rockridge would even be there is nonsensical because it's not got a gold strike it doesn't have a train line so it actually wouldn't even be there so the idea that they're all saying that they've grown up there is so ridiculous but that again is parodying the impression that westerns give at this point that the west in some way has a long, long history when it really doesn't. People just turned up. So Deadwood's actually set after this. That's our Western expert giving us some uh, hard, cold facts. I found myself laughing a lot. As previously discussed on this podcast, I am one who likes a bit of slapstick humour and the custard pie fight at the end, the food fight, really made me chuckle. Um, I quite liked the descent into actual chaos when they were just like breaking through the fourth wall, through another yeah. one, through another one. But that's potentially because I was raised on a lot of Monty Python and it is that kind of silliness. And yeah. he's letting you know that this is a spoof of Hollywood and Hollywood's take on Westerns, I think. Yeah. Got a lot of fun people in it as well. Like, I mean, we talked before about how much I love Slim Pickings. I mean, he's just great. But also uh, David Huddleston, who is... In The Big he Lebowski. Is the Big Lebowski. Yeah, 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 he's The Big Lebowski. Uh, and John Hillman from Magnum. I know. I was like, Gary, it's the guy from Magnum PI. And he's like... I don't recognise him. I'm like, you guy with the Dobermans and the tiny he shorts. Looks exactly the same. He looks exactly the same. <laughs> what really warmed my cockles, and I was surprised to find any of my cockles warmed by this film, is Bart and Jim's relationship. I love those guys. I really like mm. their friendship. Yeah. I found it really believable. I am always a little bit not sure about Gene Wilder. Yeah, well, I, think he I don't know what's wrong with him. He can tip into too much, mm. and he is just enough here. In fact, he's pretty low key. He's here, really low I think key. It is perfect. He takes the back seat. There, I don't think he's attempting to steal this film. No, it's not his film. And the other thing I really appreciated yeah. is that 
Cleveland Little is top billing. It's literally his name at the top, which is great. Yeah. Jen, did you did you have any warm fuzzies for their relationship or I just didn't like, have no? any warm fuzzies for any of it? I don't I don't <laughs> like Dean Wilder. I don't like the style. I don't I didn't like the content. It yeah, no, it's no warms and fuzzies, soz. Oh, they gave me one of the silliest bits that actually made me honk, and that's when he says, "Put your hand around that chess piece," and he's like really far away, and like he goes, "Like get hold of it," and he's like, "I don't understand what we're doing," and then it's in Jim Wilder's yeah. pocket, and it's not even camera trickery; it's just stupid. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's laugh. like when he shoots all the guns out of all their hands, and they cut back to him, and he's like, "Oops." It's just really, really silly, but you know, yeah. big fan of silly. That ending was it too silly? How did you feel about it? I remembered, I used to own this on video, and I remembered that generally at the point of which they, they're they all having a fight in the fake town, which yeah. is, again, you know, a parody of fake towns in, you know, just fronted things in westerns that look really crap. Uh, generally at that point, I used to just get bored and stop watching. And the end doesn't really, the end is a bit too chaotic for me. Plus it has, what's he called? Mostel. Zero Mostel. Oh, zero yeah, Mostel, he, is that what Yeah, Zero called? Mostel yeah, turns and, up, doesn't and he? And he puts my teeth on edge. Jen, still just hated it. Just hated it. <laughs> no, nothing further to add. Sorry. <laughs> I have a little fun fact for you. The idea came from a story outline written by Andrew Bergman, who did go on to be one of the three writers that survived in the writer's room. He originally intended to develop it and produce it himself. He said, I wrote a first draft called Tex X, which was a play on Malcolm X's name. He said, Alan Arkin was hired to direct and James Earl Jones was going to play the sheriff. That fell apart, as things often do, but... I would watch uh, the shit out of yeah. that. Jen, do you wish we'd watch that film instead? I'd be interested in that. Yeah, I think I would prefer to have watched that, but whether the outcome would have been any different, who knows? Who knows? For me, this is like probably the worst pick <laughs> like, <laughs> of all the things that I dislike. Like, really, if you'd picked it, that would have been worse. But like, <laughs> I can't think of, of like a genre that would be less suited to my taste well young frankenstein came out the same year oh, so notice not to pick that <laughs> when was it out by the way <laughs> please don't make me watch it it gave me nightmares when i was 19 oh my god of course i'm not going to if anyone ever picked it i would simply refuse to watch it so <laughs> no that's absolutely fine there's no way i would like to watch it particularly just and then talk to myself for 20 minutes about it that's <laughs> that's no fun for anyone Anyway, back to this film. Sorry, Jen. Just for one last question. Mm. Blazing Saddles, rated or dated? I don't think I need to answer, but just for the avoidance <laughs> of doubt, I'm going to say it is dated. Hannah? Yeah, I don't know. I think that it's dated in the sense that it wouldn't be made again, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I still think it stands up as a satire, particularly as a satire of Hollywood Westerns. So kind of want to say rated and it made me laugh yeah i think it's a tricky one for me as well because there were lots of things that are really dated particularly the attitudes to women and gay people and mungo's character and a lot of the jokes just don't hit anymore and they are very very dated but yeah there's something about it that still holds water for me i think the little misogyny is going to mean that i'm going to say dated though fair enough Jen, it's just me and thee next week. I what know. are we watching? I've had to find a second film in February, which... <laughs> Sorry, 
unfair, Hannah. How dare you in your time off work? Um, so, yeah, yeah, so I've picked... Uh, God, I can't even remember what it's called. It's something I'd never heard of before. The Other Sister. It's got the banner in it, isn't it? Don't know. Is it about Henry VIII? No, that's the other Berlin girl, I think. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> if only, Hannah. Just got excited at the thought of Eric Banner. Forgive me. I know, if February could have offered me Eric Banner, I'd have been quite happy, but, you know... <laughs> Standard issue for all women.